Oh man, I don't know what could be more beautiful than that to me. But anyway, the song sets the tone in a really important way for what we're talking about. And the re- what I mean by this is you could listen to that same song at home, make pancakes and you know, flip them and eat them on a Saturday morning, and it wouldn't do what it does when we sing it together sitting next to each other. When we're affirming together as people who believe and follow the resurrected Christ, there's a transformation that takes place as we corporately together join in uh, to our belief in the expression of it, of our faith, right? And so this morning, that's really what I'm talking about. We're in a series, a four-part series, and this is the third week on living the resurrection. And we've talked about uh, a resurrection identity that was last week. We talked about resurrection wonder. And today we're talking about resurrection community. And my sermon this morning is very straightforward. I have one point and one applicational question. One point, one question. And I'm going to develop my point, and then I'm going to challenge you with my question. Uh, My point for this morning is this. That being transformed by the resurrection is not a private experience, it is a relational experience. Being transformed by the resurrection is not a private experience, it is a relational experience. Now I want to develop this idea, and to do so I'm going to take you to scripture, and I'm not going to invite you to turn there in your Bibles, because I've got, I'm just going to talk to you about a lot of different scriptures. I'm going to tell you a lot of different stories, hopefully I'm going to keep you engaged, and I really want to challenge you. Uh, The way I want to start to develop this is I want to talk to you about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ, his post-resurrection appearances, those times when he appeared to people after his resurrection. It can be intensely difficult to harmonize the different accounts of Jesus's appearances, but there's anywhere from eight to, you know, 17 of them where he appeared to people after his resurrection that are recorded in scripture, something in this range. And I want to give you 11 examples of these because the other ones I think are, uh, um, they're parallel to some of the other accounts, the other events. And I just want you to hear kind of the experience of Jesus after his resurrection and how the appearance of Jesus was not a personal thing. It was a community thing. The first resurrection account I'm going to tell you about comes from John 20, verse 11 through 18. It's, it's seemingly an exception, although I don't believe it is. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene at the tomb, but Mary Magdalene has gone to the tomb to uh, prepare the body for burial. And as she goes there, she fa- gets there and she finds that the tomb stone has been rolled away. She goes into the tomb and then she comes out and she sees a man and she turns to that man and he, she says, believing he's the gardener. Do you know where the man is who was laid in this tomb? And the gardener, she thinks, says, Mary. And immediately when Mary hears the voice of Jesus, she knows it's him. And she says, my Lord and my God. And she rushes home to tell the disciples that she's experienced Christ. Even in this personal experience or this personal narrative where it's just Jesus and Mary, what is Mary's first reaction? What does she want to do? She wants to share the experience of experiencing the resurrected Christ. This is one of the exceptions. The other stories go like this. Next, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus appears to uh, the group of women who had seen him at his resurrection at uh, the tomb and appears to his disciples in an an undisclosed location, and as soon as they see him, they fall down at his feet, and they all worship him. And he commissions them to go into the world. The next account is from Luke chapter 24. It's a really neat 
beautiful account where two men are leaving the city of Jerusalem after the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. And they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about a seven-mile journey. And as they go, they're talking about what's just happened and the rumors of Jesus' resurrection. And they're talking about the scriptures. And all of a sudden, a man appears to them uh, on the road and says, can I walk with you? And they begin to walk together. And the man begins to explain to them from the scriptures all the things that Jesus did. Now, of course, the man explaining to them what Jesus did is Jesus himself, but the men don't know it. And they finally get back to their house, and they've had such a good interaction with this unknown man who is Jesus to them, you know, this unmanned man to them who is Jesus, actually. And so they invite him in for dinner, saying, we've gone for a long journey. Please stay with us and eat dinner. And it says, as they broke bread, (laughs) that their eyes were open and they saw who it was and they recognized Jesus and they worshiped and Jesus leaves. Experience together. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus appears to his disciples and, and in an upper room and he encourages them to continue to believe. And they're in such astonishment that he is there and he says, no, it's really me. I'm not a ghost. Here, give me a piece of that fish that you're eating. And he eats the fish. And then he reminds them that this is always what he said he would do from the scriptures. In John chapter 20, Jesus appears to the disciples minus Thomas who see Jesus and who are so excited after seeing him. And then Jesus goes away and Thomas comes back And they're like, we saw Jesus. And Thomas says, I won't believe. (laughs) I won't believe unless I touch his feet, I touch his hands, and I touch his side. And so the next post-resurrection appearance is Jesus does just that. He appears to Thomas, and Thomas touches his feet, his side, his hands. And he says, I love you, Thomas. But blessed are all those who have not seen and believe but so are you. He doesn't say you're not blessed. You know, he says, and blessed will all those be who also, who do not see and do believe. (laughs) Many of us in this room are among those ones who have not seen him and do believe. In John chapter 21, Jesus appears to seven of the disciples who have decided that they're going to go out and fish. And, uh, They go out and fish, and I don't really understand fishing, but I've read commentaries. And so uh, the disciples are fishing, and apparently there's one side of the boat that it's better to fish from. And so they put the net on one side of the boat, and they're not catching any fish. And this strange man appears on the beach and says, "Uh, why don't you try the other side? And the disciples are like, well, we've been out here a while. It hasn't worked. We might as well try. So they put it on the other side, and they catch 153 fish. It's funny how the text doesn't give us details sometimes, and then other times it does, you know? 153 fish. I've used that as a trivia trick at parties before, which shows how nerdy I am. You know, it was one of my top pickup lines when I was trying to get Sarah, do you know how many fish Jesus helped Peter catch? And she's like, no, I don't. And I said, 153, and she goes, that's the man. And so the text makes it even sound like it's a miracle that the nets could hold 153 fish, but they come back, and as soon as the fish are caught, Peter 
is like, I got to be with him. I know it's, it's got to be Jesus. They're all like, it's Jesus. And he jumps out of the water, swims, hugs Jesus. They make a fire. They cook the fish. They eat the fish together, together. And then Peter, Jesus calls Peter to the side and says, come here, I want to talk to you. And as the fire's in the background and as the other six disciples are eating their fish, Peter and Jesus have a, a discussion off to the side. Peter, who just denied Jesus weeks before, And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And Jesus says, well, yeah, but do you really love me? And he goes, you know I love you. And Jesus said, do you love me? And Peter says, I love you, Lord. And Jesus says, then I accept you. Go and feed my sheep. It's like this reinstatement of Peter, though you have fallen, you haven't fallen far enough from my acceptance because no one does. In, John, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus appears to the disciples for the last, uh, his, one of his last appearances before his ascension, and he commissions them into the world to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. you know? In 1 Corinthians 15.6, the text tells us that Jesus at one time appeared to 500 people at once, although we don't know the events of that occurrence. It just says he did it. In, John, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says Jesus appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, but we don't know any of the details of that appearance. And finally, in Acts chapter 9, verse 3 through 5, Jesus appears to Paul on the Damascus road. We looked at it a few weeks ago when we were going through the book of Acts. Um, and he's with a group of men who are going with him to Damascus to uh, gather Christians to kill into imprison, and on the road, a voice from heaven, that is Jesus, cries out to Paul and says, Paul, or says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, right? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And it says, it is Jesus whom you are persecuting. And meanwhile, these other men that are traveling with Paul, they see the light and they hear words You know, they hear sound, but they can't make out what Jesus is saying to Paul. It's like this communal event, community event, but yet they're not fully understanding what's going on. It might have been like Charlie Brown. You know, Paul's hearing the words, and they're hearing wah, 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 wah. It says, go into Damascus, and don't round up Christians to kill, but go into Damascus. I'm going to show you a man, and he will show you how much you will do for my name. Paul goes to Damascus. He meets a man named Ananias who explains to them him, the scriptures, and Jesus. And Paul immediately goes and starts preaching how Jesus is crucified and now he's been resurrected. And he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And through him, the kingdom of God will come to earth as we prayed in a moment ago so that God's reality will be on earth as it is in heaven. God's will. These are the post-resurrection appearances the events. With two exceptions, they are all done in the, nat- in the context of community. On one hand, this makes sense, doesn't it? And maybe you've only ever thought of it at this level, that, yeah, of course, Jesus appeared to multiple people at once, because if he hadn't done so, nobody would believe it actually happened, right? Maybe you've always thought of it on the, the level of validation or corroboration. You know, it's like if I were to tell you, uh, Mike, yesterday I had tea and biscuits with Jesus, you know, you might be thinking a few things. We live in America, not England. And then you'd say, did 
anyone else have tea and biscuits with you and Jesus? And I would say, no. But why did you ask that question? You, wouldn't, you would have been asking that question not so much because you want to know who was there, but to see if I'm crazy or not. It's like a polite way to ask, are you crazy, right? Because you would want it corroborated or validated that I'm not the only one seeing, you know, strange things. So yes, there is this element that Jesus appeared to many so that many would see so that the resurrection itself couldn't be denied. But I am 100% convinced that there is a level that is deeper than that, that he appeared to these disciples at once, and that by appearing to them in community, that Jesus was worshipped and transformed their lives in community in a way that cannot be experienced if he hadn't appeared to them in community. Why do I think this? this? This requires, it demands more explanation. Well, we have these post-resurrection appearances, but we have beyond the post-resurrection appearances, we have six famous passages from uh, the letters of Paul that talk about how we as believers enter into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just last week over in that corner, we celebrated baptism, right? And we saw these people get baptized, and we were just in the language of baptism, right? Remember it? Uh, Buried in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life. In the language of baptism itself is the language of entering into Christ's uh, death and entering into his resurrection, Now, the six famous passages by Paul on entering into the death and resurrection are as follows. And I have them up on the screen so you can see how they read. But notice the plural pronouns that get used over and over again. Let me read them to you. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We were. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, when the the individuals who were baptized, they weren't baptized as a we, I baptized them each individually, and of course that's true. Uh, There's just displacement issues at hand there, you know, Uh, like Archimedes or something. But that was a bad joke, wasn't it? (laughs) I was going for it. Some of them work, some of them don't. So anyway, I think it was Archimedes. Anyway, but you understand, I baptized them individually but we enter into it communally. It's mystical, but yet for those of us who have been baptized, every time we see a baptism, we are uh, remembering our baptism. In some churches, the liturgy or the order of service, the language of the service itself will regularly remind people to remember their baptismal vows. I really like that language. Why do I like it? Because we are being reminded that we as a community follow him together and we've made commitments to Christ as a group and as individuals and we're being called to remember and follow through with those commitments. Romans 8.11 is the second of the six. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, now this is the one time Greek has actually helped me. This in Greek, this you, because you can be either uh, singular or plural, right? This is plural. You, he who raised Christ from the dead, will also give life to your plural, mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you, plural, in all of us together. 
Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, but because of his great love for us, plural, God who is rich in mercy made us, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It has been grace that you, plural, have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus even right now. This verse has always amazed me. Like even right now for the Christian, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places in mysterious ways that we don't understand and often do not feel. The one exception of his great resurrection passages in death passages is Philippians 3.10 where Paul says this, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, to participate in his sufferings, to become like him in his death so somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the one time he uses the singular I, personal pronoun. Uh, And yet, Even in this context, he's talking about how he really wants and intends for those reading this section, he intends for them to enter into the experience of also experiencing the resurrection and the power of Christ's death and his resurrection. It is representative in language, the I. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. These yous aren't actually personal pronouns. They are, they're connected to the verb. They're participles and they're in the plural. Since then you have been raised, Colossians 3.1, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. All the pronouns and the participles are plural. You, 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 with the exception of the I of Philippians 3. Because we cannot experience a resurrection identity individually without the community behind us to help us. We cannot. This even bears further explanation. You need to understand what I mean, and I can do this, I think, really well and easily. Besides the post-resurrection appearances and the six death and resurrection passages of Paul, there are an additional, don't get too nervous, 59 other passages in the Bible that talk about one-anothering each other, one-anothering in community when it talks about the church. I'm going to read some of them to you. There are 59 statements of one another that the New Testament authors wrote, Paul and Peter and James, the ones who spent time with Jesus after his resurrection. There are 59, but there are 31 unique, and they are 26 of the 31 that are unique are positive things that we are to do to each other. Five of them are things that we are not to do to each other. It is instructions to us on how to live as a Christian community, a church community, a resurrection community, and listen to what the community is supposed to look like, and I dare you to not have your heart warmed at the desire to be a part of this kind of world. Be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. This is about serving, right? Love one another. That's 15 times. It's by far the most repeated. The next one is four. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Live in harmony with one another. Don't pass judgment on one another. That sounds good. Accept one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. Wait for each other. You know, just be patient. Just wait. Actually, the context of this, well, I can't just say that out of context. The context is for communion. You're supposed to take communion together, but wait for one another. Have equal concern for one another. 
serve one another. Do not bite and devour one another. (laughs) It's not a Mike Tyson dynamic going on here. It's metaphorical. (laughs) Do not become conceited and provoke and envy one another. Carry one another's burdens. Be patient with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. In humility, consider one another better than you. Do not lie to one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another, which is an awful lot like build one another up, which is the other one. Spur one another on towards loving good deeds. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble or complain against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. And be hospitable towards one another. Now, this is a mathematical certainty. My parents were both engineers and I was a disappointment to them because I hated math. But I was a positive thing for them in many other ways. They actually were visiting me this weekend. So they were here first service, but they've, they've gone. It's important to make good time on the way back. Now, <laughs> I'm such an idiot, aren't I? Uh, <laughs> but it is so important to that. We'll definitely put second service, our first service, on the recording for the website. But it is really important to them to make good time. But it is also important to me to make good time. My wife, whenever we go out of a good visit, all right, let's get out of the house by nine. Why? Well, we want to get there by in. We want to get there by four. Why? Well, I don't know. I want to make good time. Why? Well, I just do. I want to be there by four. Why? It's, it's important to us bombbacks to make good time. <laughs> so I am kind of teasing them, but I, I mean, I'm just like them with that. But anyway... My parents were just here, but I don't even know why I was saying that. But um, anyway, the one another's. There is a, oh, the mathematical certainty. There we go. (laughs) Mathematical certainty. It is a mathematical certainty that we cannot one another ourselves. Do you understand? I cannot one another another to myself. That's math, sort of. We have to live in community to one another, another. Yes? Thanks, Joe. We have to one, live in community to one another, another. And yet, can you imagine spiritually what it would do? For, this is so awesome to me. Can you imagine what it would do for you spiritually to forgive one another? Have you done it? It's hard. You're crazy. I don't want to forgive you. I want to not be with you. Oh, wait, I've got to bear with one another. You remember that one? And now, because I can't just X you out of my life, I've got to bear with you. And if I have to bear with you, I have to forgive you for the ways that you've caused problems in my life. And I'm not I, I'm speaking passionately as if one of you has done something. None of it's done, not done anything as I'm aware of. But you understand. Imagine what that would do for you on a spiritual level. What if we loved one another where we put in humility, put one another above ourselves? Can you imagine what that would do for you on a spiritual level? 
Even if you have a friend who's a delinquent and you've put a lot into the relationship, you really love them, don't you? Because you've loved them. Because love creates more love. The more love you put into a relationship, the more you find yourself willing to put more love into the relationship and the more you're willing to look at somebody with grace and kindness that you wouldn't normally, right? If somebody cuts you off on the street, you know, and you're tempted to swear and get angry with them because they're a bad driver, and then you see it's your buddy, you're like, oh, well, he's probably just didn't see me, you know? You see what I mean? Looking in each other's eyes, putting faces and names to one anothering. One anothering, everybody loves in the concrete, or in the abstract, few people like it in the concrete. And you know what? One anothering people in the abstract does nothing for you spiritually, but one anothering each other in the concrete does a world of good. It's just true. It's just true. Imagine what it would do for you spiritually. So I've referenced roughly 59 plus 6 plus 11 passages. I've done pretty good on Bible stuff. I just have one question and we'll be done. I have one question. If this community thing is so important, then where are, you do, where are you with that? And the question I've got for you this morning is, does the expression of your faith cause you to want to be more distant or does it make you want to be closer to other people? Does the expression of your faith cause you to want to be more distant or more intimate with other people? And let me tell you a couple things. I've known at least two kinds of people. They're the only kinds of people I could think of for this that are missing the mark bad. I've met people who have had this spiritual experience and then in their spiritual experience, they find themselves wanting distance from everybody else. This can look a lot of different ways. Often I've seen it where it happens where a person starts to really study and love theology. I do too. I love theology. Just have breakfast with me and I'll talk to you forever about it. But I've known people that love and study theology and all of a sudden nobody knows as much as they do and nobody says the things the way they should and No church is quite good enough because they did this, this, or that. And so they stay at home and they listen to their favorite preacher at home who they actually agree with or read books. And that, I'm just going to go for it today. That's a perverse expression of faith. It's a perverse expression of faith. If our expression of our faith that we believe we're growing closer to God makes us less likely to want to be with other people, whether they are Christians or not Christians, it is a perverse expression of your faith. And then I'll be gentler with the other person. Then there's also this dynamic That the longer we follow Jesus, the easier it is for us to make all of our circle or our sphere with only other people who know Jesus. And that's not a healthy dynamic either. Our expression of our faith should lead us to look more and more like Jesus. And we look into his eyes and we see a man who though he was rich, became poor for our sake, who died for us, and who came to earth to spend time with people who needed the love and the acceptance of God 
And it's as if Jesus came to earth incarnate, that means in a body, fully God, fully man, and said this, I love you, I accept you, I approve of you, you can have new life in me, I want you, (laughs) I free you from your guilt. Aren't you hearing these beautiful things? And I want you. And if that's what Jesus does, then that's what we need to do too, right? And so we can only really do that effectively together. And so let me pray for you that we do it. Heavenly Father, help us to value our differences. Give grace to each other in our weaknesses. And be a safe place for each other. Amen. Would you stand with me? And then I'll let you go. I have one quick announcement Right after church, it's going to start around 11.45, noon, around that, no later than noon. We have our first uh, quarterly congregational business meeting. And I want to invite and strongly encourage every member to attend. And then anybody who's interested in hearing more about our church, the meeting's about 30 to 40 minutes at the most. We would love for you to be here too. We're going to talk about a ton of things that have happened and a ton of things that are happening. And we would like to invite you into that to hear about that. We are really... It's an important thing to me that we have a membership that is grateful and passionate about what we're doing, who is informed and involved about what we're doing. Does this make sense? And so we want people at our meetings because we want you to hear about what we're doing so you can be involved with what we're doing so that you can passionately share and introduce people to Jesus and follow him together. To that end, let me pray for you as we are dismissed. It is a closing prayer of benediction. You can close your eyes or you can keep them open. It is a prayer of empowerment that you'd live out what you've just heard. So now go. Go into the world in peace and have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men and women. (laughs) Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And above all, share the good news of the crucified, resurrected, coming again, Son of God, Jesus Christ. May the love of our Heavenly Father and the power of the Holy Spirit guide your way. Amen. It was a pleasure.